Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Can we pray as we shift into scripture this morning? Living God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for who you are. And thank you that before us, you were at work seeking this world in love. Before me, before anything I would want to bring today, you are the one whose heart beats for us. You are a God who seeks to reveal yourself to us. You are a God who by your spirit comes near in love. And so we just throw ourselves upon you again right here. We have sung, um, we have turned towards you, we've been called in prayer to you. Lord, we ask in your mercy and grace you would awaken us to yourself in this space and time. You would speak to us through your word and your community. Yeah. Lord, I feel a mix of things inside of me today. I'm not sure what all is there, but I just come and offer myself to you and ask that you would come have your way today. Lord, we trust it's your purpose that's brought us here today. It's your heart, it's your desires, it's your will. So come, Holy Spirit, and have your way for your glory. Amen. Uh, all right, sorry, I just, yeah, I feel a little bit funny this morning. And, and in God's grace, I woke up, it's one of those funny Sunday mornings, and thankful I don't have a lot of these. I woke up Sunday morning, and as I stepped into um, the shower, I had the thought, oh, if I had a day, I'd rewrite this whole sermon. Sometimes you feel that way, right? And then I went downstairs, and I made a cup of coffee, and I received a text from my daughter on the other side of the world, and she says to me, Dad, I just listened to one of your messages and God speaks through you. So expect him to speak today. Yeah. And that was a gift to me. And I'm taking that as God's invitation for me to just embrace what I bring today, trusting it is from God's word. And he's been teaching me and I'm sure I could say it differently and maybe you'll want it to have been said differently, but that's okay. We'll just come as we are today. Um, so if you are just joining us today, uh, we are near the home stretch or on the home stretch of a fall study called Life with God for the World, which some of you will know if you've been around Lambrick, this is our vision as a church. Uh, and so this fall, we are in this study building off a resource from Tim Keller called Gospel and Life that is really an exploration, an invitation into God's vision for his work in the world, a work that begins with the gospel working in us, reclaiming our hearts, overturning our idols. A gospel at work among us, making us a church family that seeks him together, that grows in the pursuit of God together, that represents God in the world. And then is worked out in our own daily lives, in our work lives uh, and more. And one thing that has intrigued me is how often the themes in this series don't really show up in most basic discipleship manuals. Now, I'm, I'm a book guy. If you come to my office, I've got a wall of books, and I know I probably have certain, you know, we read different things, so maybe you don't own a lot of basic discipleship manuals. But if you did, 
most of them don't include some of the themes we've been exploring this fall, particularly last week's theme and this week's. Last week being our daily work, and this week being the work of justice. Most discipleship manuals out there will have a, a week on prayer, a week on how to read your Bible, a week on how to fast, or different spiritual disciplines, but they often don't get into this terrain. Maybe partly because there's an assumption that if we spend time in God's word, God himself through his word will lead us to these themes. And hopefully, yes, I'm convinced it's all there. But sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we go through a whole lifetime not knowing that our respective work is a participation in God's work, right? We talked about that last Sunday. Part of the reason for this, at least in our day, is because of how we often talk about the life of faith and approach life of faith as primarily an interior thing, a matter of the heart, a matter of our inner world, our desires, our intentions, hence the familiar hashtag thoughts and prayers, right? Quite a, maybe uh, hated now. I think, you know, a little while back earlier this year, people started saying, hashtag, we need more than thoughts and prayers, right? And thoughts and prayers matter. They matter deeply. God the God we encounter in Scripture cares deeply about our inner world. Our thoughts shape us. Our prayers define us. But thankfully, the God we encounter in the pages of the stories of the Old and New Testament doesn't just care about our thoughts and prayers, but the whole of our lives. All that we are, all that we say, all that we do. Which I think is a big part of why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5 as the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength because God cares about all, get the right version there, all that we are, all that we do, all of the world, all that we do, not, not that any of us can earn God's grace by what we do. I wanna make that really clear. The apostle of grace in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, to which our hearts must respond, do respond, thank God. And yet in the very next breath, the next verse, we hear the Apostle Paul declare, Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, God's work, created or recreated in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, which doesn't in any way undo the gospel of grace, but actually reveals how God's grace means not only our undeserved acceptance, thank God for that, but also it means our undeserved enrollment into being a participant in God's work in the world, God's holy work in the world, right where we are. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so as part of the series last week, and this is about exploring this, what is this holy work that God has prepared for us to do. So last Sunday, we talked about how each of our work, our jobs, paid or unpaid, whatever we do, if done for the glory of God, can truly be a participation in God's good sustenance and seeking the flourishing of the world, whatever you do. William Tyndall, 
the 16th century reformer who first translated the Bible into English, once said, there is no work better than another to please God, to pour water, to wash dishes, to be a cobbler or an apostle, all is one. To wash dishes and to preach is all one as touching the deed to please God. That's what we talked about last Sunday. If that's a foreign idea to you, please go back and listen to the podcast or watch the video. But today, I wanna, we need to press further to explore the way the gospel inevitably calls us into the work of justice, which I don't think we've always realized, much less embraced, and I say this of myself. And to be honest, I think just naming this theme, this call as integral to the gospel, for some, might seem unsettling or overwhelming. I don't know this week, as I, as I talked to people and said, you know, someone asked me, what are you speaking on this week? If I say justice, for some it's like, oh. others it's, what? you know, it's like, a, has an impact. It's not innocuous. Overwhelming for some. Because I think of how the last few years have been so consumed with cries for justice in our world, and rightly so, from so many places and people, right? In truth, there have been stretches over the last few years where seemingly every month, if not week, another whole world of justice has surfaced that needed to be named and known and understood and called out and rallied against by everyone. Deserved to be, and rightly so, which is good and needed and hard. But with this, there's also at times been an emergence of a lot of judgment that comes with this, these renewed or new fresh calls for justice. A lot of judgment on others or one another for having not or for not joining the rally as strongly or as fast as another, which sometimes contributes to uh, some starting to feel unsettled for lots of reasons about this increased call for justice. For some, that unsettledness is just trying an attempt to avoid guilt. But for others, some Christians, rightly or wrongly, this unsettledness comes from a conviction that all of this emphasis on justice is actually just a distraction from the core things of the gospel and the priority of reconciliation with God. We'll get there. All of that, whatever part of that applies to you, whatever part of the overwhelm or the unsettledness, all of that can lead us at times to just want to turn the news off, to turn off our social media fade, feed and turtle. Find something else on Netflix. Press on. To turn off the screen, maybe, and return to the simplicity of Jesus' great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. And second to this, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a text we turn to, many of us, in our hearts, in Scripture, often, especially when everything swirls and we feel pulled in a million directions, right? We come back and hear Jesus say to us, just love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And yet right here in the simplicity of these, this familiar call, Jesus seeks to take us by the hand and walk us back out the door into the messiness of the injustice of the world in a million ways. 
And I say this because of where Jesus sourced this command. Because Jesus didn't make up the command, love your neighbor as yourself, right? That isn't just Jesus' really nice spin, New Testament spin on Old Testament law. Jesus is quoting straight from your favorite Old Testament book, Leviticus. Straight from Leviticus 19, verse 18, a chapter in, in Leviticus that speaks powerfully about the holiness and justice of God. Hear that. And I know you all know Leviticus like the back of your hand, right? It's your, it's your go-to devotional reading. No, it's not, right? Most of us don't read Leviticus often, and if we do encounter it, we don't read it with expectation for profound revelation. My daughter is in England at a Bible school this year. They have to read through the Old Testament. Leviticus is the kind of book that you read to check off the list for most people. That's how people approach it. Or maybe you said to yourself, all right, I want to read the whole Bible through this year, and you pound through Genesis and maybe Exodus. There's so much goodness. And then Levit by the time you get to like Leviticus 4, you're like... That was, oh, that, was a great, that was a great idea. <laughs> Let's go to the Gospels, which is sad. It's sad because Leviticus, though challenging, and it is, there's so much, it's such a foreign world to us where it's written from. And yet when we do the hard work or have resources to help us, there's beauty there. Like for instance, there's a, a common command in Leviticus about those who uh, work the land not to glean all the way to the edges, not to go back and, and glean it a second time and take everything, but to leave it for the poor. In the ancient Near East, the leftovers were considered to be left over for the gods as food for the gods, so the gods would bless your crops. But in Leviticus, in the story of our God revealed in Scripture, the leftovers are for the poor. Leviticus is beautiful. We encounter the beauty of God in Leviticus. The beauty of God's holiness. And how this holiness is to be worked out in the hearts and lives of God's people. And the heart of this book, of mostly priestly instructions, Leviticus 19 offers us a powerful glimpse of the heart of our God. And if you have a Bible, I'd love it for you to open it with me to Leviticus 19. If you don't own a Bible, there is a bookshelf around the corner, and you are welcome to take, take one, use it, keep it. There's some other books out there that are for sale. The Bibles are for taking. Leviticus 19. In a way, Leviticus 19 is another take on the Ten Commandments. Most of us, if we're looking for the Ten Commandments, run to Exodus 19. Yeah, 19. Maybe that helps you find this again. And in Exodus, you get the Ten Commandments, and it's followed by a whole series of chapters that really break down the core commands into the everyday of people's lives. What do you do when your uh, horse has been wounded by a neighbor's beast? What do you do when your slave has been whatever? Like, it, it breaks it down into every, people's everyday life in the ancient world. But in Leviticus 19, all of this happens all at once. We're presented with a version of the Ten Commandments that is interspersed with these practical scenarios of what you do as a landowner or a boss or someone who's dealing with a conflict in the courts. It's all woven together. And what's really important for us to realize as we come to Leviticus 19 or any of the Old Testament laws 
is to understand that first and foremost, Leviticus 19 is a revelation of God. It's not just a series of instructions for you as the people of God, for us. It is a revelation of God, a revelation of God's holiness as Leviticus 19 verse 1 and 2 announces. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then with that, God speaks a series of commands, each intended to draw them into, to reveal something of God's holiness. This is what I am like, God says, as your holy God. Many of them concluding with this seemingly monotonous refrain, I am the Lord. I'll read some of them for us. Leviticus 19, verse three. For each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe the Sabbath. I am the Lord, your God. Let it be said in the ancient Near Eastern world, most codes of ethics do not include the mother. Here in the story of Israel, again and again, the mother is named alongside the father. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe the Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of the field and gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, this is what I'm like. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And one more, Leviticus 19, verse 33 to 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. You were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. 15 times we hear this refrain within about 30, 35 commands. I am the Lord, your God, which is the kind of seemingly painful repetition that leads people to give up on reading a book like Leviticus. And yet, it's this refrain, this beautiful refrain that highlights how each and every command is not simply the duty of God's people, but a revelation of God's beauty and holiness, a revelation of the beauty of God's holiness. In other words, this is how God is toward the world. This is how God is toward you. This is how God is toward the poor in the land, the foreigner who's displaced, toward those who do not worship him. When he speaks about your neighbor, he's talking about other nations, other peoples that don't worship this God. He is a God whose holy love is for all and whose holy love for all compels him to seek justice for all, the blessing of all, including the poor, the foreigner, the neighbor, which means the pagan, as for us. In the book of Leviticus and all throughout scripture, God's holiness is expressed, is revealed and expressed through the pursuit of justice for all, which I think tends to mess with how some of us think about holiness and justice and maybe love and the relationship of the three. If we're honest these days, we tend to put justice and holiness on a spectrum. I think we're, keep going, one more. Boom, yes. Justice and holiness on a spectrum, right? 
If you ask around, you look around, you pay attention, even just in the church, to the diversity of the Christian world, the more conservative world, the more progressive camp, you could really break down the divide between the progressive and the conservative Christian community as largely adhering to opposite ends of this spectrum. Conservative, conservatives passionate about holiness, and rightly so. And progressives passionate about justice, and rightly so. Both claiming love as their motive. And yet here in Leviticus 19, in the very chapter that, where Jesus sources his famous love your neighbor as himself, justice, at least the justice of God, is revealed as integral to the holiness of God. A vital, a necessary, a natural outworking of the holiness of God. The two are bound up in one another. We don't have the option to pick holiness or justice because our God is holy and just. They're each bound up in each other in the holy love of God. And I love how we find this affirmed by Jesus in the parable that we encounter in Luke 10. After Jesus affirms, this is where Jesus names in Luke the commandment, love the Lord your God, sourcing Leviticus 19. Jesus speaks this and he is asked, well, who is my neighbor, right? And Jesus tells a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's a story that many of us know. We've, mo most of us know it in some way, even beyond the church. People know about a Good Samaritan. That idea is commonly understood. And we're often challenged by the example of the Samaritan who cared for the need of another as opposed to the Levite and the priest, the religious folks who had their thing to do and ignored the need of the other but I've been challenged by the simple insight of the late John Stott, one of the great Bible teachers and radical evangelicals of the last century. We need more people like John Stott. In his masterful book, The Contemporary Christian, John Stott makes the simple observation that whereas in the parable of the prodigal son, we talked about that a few weeks ago, we are confronted with the love of God for sinners, for people who have run off, made their own choice to run off to the far country and reject God. The parable of prodigal son opens that up for us. But here, in this parable, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we are confronted with the, with the love of God for those who have been sinned against. Let me say that again. In the parable of the prodigal son, we are confronted with the love of God for sinners, for the, those who are the victim of their own sin. But in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we are confronted with the love of God for those who have been sinned against. And that love leads God to action. That's what the parable tells us. That's what Jesus' life shows us. The love of God for those who have been sinned against leads God not just to empathy, but to action. A love that seeks to, to care for the wounded, as we see in the parable, sacrificially if needed, as the Good Samaritan does, right? Pays out of his own pocket for the care of another that he knows nothing of, has had no part in the, in the attack upon this individual, but gives of himself. But in Jesus, we see more than just the care of the wounded. We see a God who seeks 
to transform a culture, to form a people, to overturn systems and values that neglect and prey on the vulnerable, right? Which means that in the parable of the prodigal son, where Jesus expounds on the simple call to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus himself invites us to see and know our God is a God who seeks justice, who seeks to come near and act for the sake of those who have suffered at the hands of others. As many have said, our God is a God both of justification and justice. And this parable ends with Jesus saying to his all, all of his listeners, including us, go and do likewise. As Scott McKnight wisely says, followers of Jesus, follow Jesus. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. Come, follow me, Jesus says. Now, as I say all that, maybe you're saying, okay, you've just led me back to the point where I feel overwhelmed, right? I was kind of hoping, maybe, <laughs> for a big relief, and yet here we are now saying, oh, the God that we encounter in Jesus, the God of the cross is a God who comes to act against injustice, to overturn systems of injustice, and yes, he is. Thank God he is. But in that too, there is a grace I think we need to know, a personal invitation in this. And I want to turn us maybe finally, I think I'm speaking shorter than normal today, uh, to Luke chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. Again, if you have a Bible, turn there, flag it. Luke chapter 3. If you find yourself today needing to maybe revisit this theme on your own, maybe you're feeling like, ah, oh, I'm not totally sure how much this is the story of the gospel. I have been challenged recently to read the gospel of Luke from start to finish and just listen. Mary's Magnificat, uh, Luke chapter 1. And, and pay attention to what Mary says about what Jesus will do. Let me read a little piece of it for you. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Okay, we can hear that, and it feels like stuff that's just for your heart. But then you get to verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost beings. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. Mary is recounting the justice of God as she declares the gift of Jesus coming. You read Zechariah's prophecy about the news of Jesus coming. It's the same thing. You read Jesus describing his own ministry and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the oppressed. This is the story of Jesus. John the Baptist, which is where we're going now, has a similar emphasis. And you watch the life of Jesus. And where does he go? But he comes near to the broken, to those who've been cast out, to those who are possessed, oppressed. And everywhere he goes, he sets them free. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. He has come not just to save our souls and take us to heaven, 
but to draw us into the life of God on earth today, bit by bit, for his glory and the good of our world. Luke 3, the inaugural message and ministry of John the Baptist. And I want to end here because of something I said at the start about the way in which this conversation often can lead us to feeling overwhelmed and potentially a lot of false guilt. And I'm not referring to the guilt of discovering your own complicity in injustice. That is called conviction by the Spirit, and we need to heed it. But there is a lot of false guilt that gets dredged up out of not being able to do it all. And I think this is so common. I think we all feel it at times because we can't do it all. You can't do it all. You can't hop on the bus against every injustice. None of us can. And we shouldn't. Anyone who is really giving their life to fight injustice in a significant way would say that if you're going to commit to this in a way that has, brings about real change, you can't commit to everything. And there's a need for us, the call to participate with God in seeking justice on this earth requires each of us to discern where is the place where we can and will contribute deeply, urgently, and patiently, which also necessarily means accepting and naming the places where we will not. Trusting the God of the gospel with that and blessing one another in it. That's part of what's stirring in me as I walk in this, as I feel the, the tensions that you feel, the need for us to bless one another, to discern and give ourselves to the diverse things that God has called us to do and not judge one another for investing in other things. Does that make sense? Because sometimes we do, right? Sometimes we get so caught up in something that we look at someone else, what the heck are they doing? How come they don't care? Without maybe realizing they are pouring their life into something else. Without realizing that maybe within their very own home, their very own family, their very own neighborhood, there is a great need that for them to walk away from and volunteer over here would be an act of injustice. And sometimes we just look at people and we look at our own schedules and we don't see people lining up with us and we cast judgment when the Spirit might have them right where they are. We hear this in the wisdom of John the Baptist in Luke 3, and I really appreciate it. This, there's this bold, overarching call to the repentance of faith, which really looks like doing justly. But then in this, John has the wisdom to apply it differently to different people. So let me just read this for us. Luke 3, verse 7 and following. I am mid-40s, and my eyes are changing, so I'm doing this now. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's been a couple months. I got new glasses, and my font now sucks. The font size. Time to buy a bigger Bible. Luke 3, 7 and following. John said to the crowd, after people are coming out to be baptized, he said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So don't just get baptized. Turn, turn to this God who has a way of life that is, means life for all. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our fathers, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then shall we do, the crowds ask? And John answers to all. He says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. So there's a call to generosity with what we have. That's for all. But then in verse 12, it says, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. We see something similar with Jesus and how when he comes to people and he comes to people's home, calls them into his salvation life, sometimes the implications of this look different for different people. I remember years ago, a mentor of mine talking about um, the story of the rich young ruler and he comes to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, sell everything and come follow me. And then if you keep going in the story, you get the story of Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector who's been extorting people, gaining wealth on the backs of others, the suffering of others. And Jesus comes to his house and he turns to God in faith. And then he stands and says to the crowd, salvation has come to my house today. I'm giving away half of my wealth. And you can imagine the rich young ruler standing in the back going, wait a second, I just sell everything. What is that? Jesus knows each of us. He knows the path that we're on. He knows what he wants to do in us, what he needs to do in us. And his call at times looks different. In Luke 3, John speaks a word of wisdom to all that a life of producing fruit in keeping with repentance looks like generosity. But then when he works it down to the details, it looks different for the tax collector as it does for the soldier. And I appreciate John and Jesus' acknowledgement that aligning your daily life and my daily life with the purposes of God, joining God's hand in the pursuit of justice will look different for each of us. But here's the thing, it will look like something. Um, Kent Annan, actually brother of a friend of mine, he has given his life to leading a justice organization for the sake of refugees, particularly in Haiti, uh, sorry, the poor in Haiti. He has written some great books. One of them is called Slow Kingdom Coming, Practices for Doing Justly, Loving Mercy, and Walking Humbly with God. And early in his book, he just names this, that the list of injustices in our day is long. The list of injustices that are worthy of giving our all to is long. He says, These days, racial injustice and the climate crisis are top of mind. No issues are more important right now, right? Uh, Except for human trafficking and endemic violence against women. And then there's the growing chasm between the wealthy and the poor and the resulting disenfranchisement and the long-term fracturing of society, the latest refugee crisis, access to education and clean water, an issue in our own country, cruelty toward animals and farming, factory farming, nuclear disarmament, and the list goes on. And we could add our own, specific to our Canadian context, the opioid crisis, truth and reconciliation on a million of fronts, the fact that there are First Nations communities in Canada that don't have drinkable water Asian hate crimes in our own cities and more and more. And that's just the stuff on the news. There's also the stuff 
in our own families, in our own social circle, our friends, our neighbors, colleagues at work, the battles that are experienced among us right here in this room, some that are known, some that are completely unknown. Do we lean into local, national, international issues, women, children, refugees, minorities, emergency relief, long-term change, systemic overhaul, individual, institutions, societal issues, people, animals, environment. It's too much, right? It's why we need not just to commit ourselves to justice, but to the God who's seeking justice. To commit ourselves to seek and listen to and follow a God who knows the injustices of the world and who knows you and me and knows the plans and purposes that he has prepared, the good work he's prepared for you and for me. Not that all of us will have a moment where all of a sudden we'll see clearly. That's not what this is. Usually it's just a life of seeking and following Jesus, listening, paying attention to the people around us, what is in front of us, and discerning where the Spirit is saying, okay, this one, lean in here. You, lean in here. And you, lean in over here. And for some of us, everyone will see it and we'll know it. We'll look across the room, we'll know, yeah, they're involved in this. And others of us, it will not be known because it's with our neighbor or it's our brother or it's our own kid. I want to close with one example where I've seen this lived out recently. And I love this example because I don't even think the person themselves sees it. And I know for me, I could, as I look around this room, I could name many of you. Many of you that are caring for widows and orphans in everyday ways, and I love it. It'd be easy to look at our church and just say, ah, middle-class suburban church, doesn't give a rip about justice. They just want to meet Jesus and do their devotions and do their life. No, right in this room, there are so many stories of people showing up to sit with the lonely, to care for the orphan, to care for the widow, to fight against structures and powers and systems. Some of you don't even realize what you're doing, but you are following Jesus. But one story stands out this past Thursday night, I uh, participated in an online Zoom book discussion. Um, I signed up this year uh, to participate in a Renovare book study. Renovare is a North American or international Christian spiritual formation organization. And the first book is uh, Trevor Hudson, a Methodist South African, his new book, um, Seeking God. I won't go into it, but it's so good. But I, was, I signed up for this year-long book club just for this first two months because I wanted, it was worth 50 bucks. My parents gave me some birthday money and I bought the book and I joined the discussion and you get to meet online a little bit. But at the end of the thing, which was this past week, they got to have a live webinar with the author of the book who I just admire this person so much, wonderful follower of Jesus who's given his life to pastoring in the midst of apartheid and the ending of dismantling of apartheid, well, that, that's, that's a long conversation itself. But the struggle of his nation has lived in hard places, followed Jesus there, and has beautiful hope, and has brought beautiful kingdom change where he is. 
So I got to meet him this week. But on Thursday night, I joined a, a group of seven people scattered across San Diego all the way to another woman on Vancouver Island here. Seven of us talking together about this book, processing the ways that God is speaking to us. And on the call is this young married mom who lives just across the water in the midst of the Olympic Peninsula. And as she, soon as she stepped in, you could see this fragility in her wiring, this tenderness, tears there the whole time. This heavy set of emotions, sadness that weighed on her. And at some point in the night, we we're talking about resurrection joy and how we need it, how Jesus wants to give it to us and we need it, especially in the midst of the heaviness, the brokenness of the world. And she shares about how she rarely experiences any sort of joy, how she lives more in the hard places and feels that God has called her to be there. And somewhere in the night, she explains that, that this particular night, the tears that are just kind of leaking, she called herself a seeper. <laughs> Once it starts, it can't stop. The tears that were seeping out of her heart and eyes were there because she'd just gotten off the phone with an insurance company fighting, but not for herself, but for the sake of a neighbor. I couldn't help think that how this mostly unseen, ordinary act done at home with no one noticing was truly a participation in God's fight for justice in this world, seeking the joy and the well-being and the care of another an act that would not be included on her list's tally of recent justice initiatives, but is truly a pursuit of justice nonetheless, and a costly one, ruining her night in a way as she showed up to our group seeping, <laughs> but an act of love for a neighbor who needs to know a God who sees their suffering and does something. And he was through her. So friends, it looks different, but it looks like something. So I suspect for some of us in the midst of this morning, you might feel like, okay, yeah, I, there's something I've been ignoring. Some way that God has been putting something in front of me that I need to go back to and open myself to. But many of us, maybe you're going, I don't know, my hands are open. Or maybe you're saying, yeah, Lord, that's why I'm doing this. But again, as I said before, our call isn't just to commit to justice. Our call is to pay attention to and follow our God of justice, right? So let's pray and come to our God together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I want to thank you. We want to thank you for the gospel today of, of who you are and what you have done and are doing. And we confess our need for you today, Lord, our world's need for you. And we thank you as Ephesians chapter two has declared that we are saved not by our works, but what you have done for us. In your mercy, you come to us self-seeking women and men that we are by nature. And you have given your life for us. You have shown us through scripture and especially in Jesus the holiness, the beauty 
of our God, the life you've made us for. You have laid down yourself for us on the cross to forgive our rebellion and our self-seeking and our sin. And by your grace, you now have come to draw us into your life, to give us your Holy Spirit that you would live in us and lead us into this way to make us a part of this story for your glory and the good of our world and our joy in you. So we just bow ourselves to you, God, today. We thank you for this invitation, this reminder of who you are. I ask for that above all, for each of us as we go out into our world today, that we would know more and more and more that you are a God of justice, that this is bound up in your holiness, your goodness, your grace, your gospel. And you would open our eyes and give us faith to say yes to the things that you are calling us to. So guide us, open our hearts, God. Open our lives and lead us in you.